Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. It's Will here. The Fresh Ed team is back from holidays. While we were away, we started our first round of fundraising. Over the past four weeks, we raised over 10% of our yearly goal. I'd like to thank Tom Popkovitz, Jane Kenway, Bob Adamson, Fran Vavris, and Kane Osborne for their contributions. If you would like to contribute, please visit freshedpodcast.com support. I won't bug you any longer for donations, but please know Fresh Ed relies on support from listeners like you. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Bren. Today, we talk about war and children in Japan. My guest today is Sabina Frustuk, a professor of modern Japanese cultural studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she also directs the East Asia Center. She has published a new book called Playing War, Children and the Paradoxes of Modern Militarism in Japan. It is a cultural history of the naturalized connections between childhood and militarism. We have a military, uh, particularly during the modern period until 1945, that uh, exploited children and the figure of the child in various ways in order to advance Japanese militarism in Asia. In the book, Sabina analyzes the rules and regularities of war play from the hills and along the rivers of 19th century rural Japan to the killing fields of 21st century cyberspace. It is a timely book that addresses the red-hot debates in Japan over its imperial past, its imposed pacifism, and its creeping militarization today. One interesting element is the fact that the self-defense forces now have tapped into or do tap into children's culture in a way they have never done before. Sabina Frustuk, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for having me. You have a, um, a new book out called Playing War, and you are looking at the history and contemporary culture of children and the connection to military in Japan. What is this connection between the military and children? How are children militarized? I believe that historically and contemporarily, one of the surprising stories to tell is that um, children and childhood as a, as a metaphorical, as a symbolic concept and militarism and the military are very closely connected in the sense that we have theories about children being quasi naturally drawn to war and to playing war in particular. And on the other hand, uh, we have a military uh, particularly during the modern period until 1945, that uh, exploited children and the figure of the child in various ways in order to advance Japanese militarism in Asia. And in Japan, of course, it's, uh, this whole relationship is interesting, I think, because we think of post-1945 Japan as pacifist and anti-militarist, and correctly so, but uh, in recent years, the last 10 years, uh, the current military, the self-defense forces, um, is increasingly tapping into children's culture and is utilizing the figure of the child in order to mold its, uh, favorably mold its public image. 
So let's go through the history a bit here. So before we get to the post-1945 era after World War II, uh, and even in the last few years, like you said, about the self-defense forces, let's talk about Imperial Japan. What, what were you looking at when you researched Imperial Japan to look at the connection between children and the military? Yeah, the, the material itself is actually incredibly interesting and uh, varied. It is really around 1900 that uh, children's books, uh, children's magazines, all kinds of other materials that are specifically created for children on the basis of a new notion of children deserving their own popular culture, their own mass culture, their own readings, their own images, and so on and so forth. So for that part of the book, I looked at exactly these materials, children's books, uh, children's magazines, picture books, guides for mothers and families on how to raise children, uh, on how to uh, mold their emotions on all aspects that have to do with child education, including play. And uh, so I got to look at a lot of interesting images. Uh, I looked at soldiers' memoirs that were written for children so memoirs of the war experience uh, that were written for children in Japan with an eye on the idea that Japanese children would of course want to know how children in parts of the empire live. And so what did you find? So a number of uh, things were particularly interesting to me. One is that the rhetoric of children in Japan being particularly lucky because they get to grow up in Japan was one uh, conversation that uh, one can trace across different children's media. Whereas children in Manchuria, children in other parts of China, in other parts of Asia, in the, deep into the 1930s and early 40s, were represented as being very poor, uh, were represented as uh, not being able to go to school and learn, um, not having enough to eat, and so on and so forth. So that was one particular theme that was very prominent. Another one was images, but in memoirs as well, the idea and, and the depiction of soldiers with children, of Japanese soldiers with children in the South Seas, in Manchuria and other parts of the empire. And they were always represented as being in um, uh, entertaining conversations with these children. It was always sort of a amicable kind of encounter. The soldiers give candy to the children, caramels in the case of Japanese soldiers in particular at the time. They chat with children, they report the children uh, come after them to, uh, to talk to them and so on and so forth. So that whole notion of Japanese soldiers behind the front lines all over Asia, encountering children that were interested in them and with which they struck up friendships uh, was also something that was very, very prominent. And of course, uh, there's a number of, of ideas that uh, I think inform Im these images. One is that pre-literate children, but perhaps children up to the age of 12, 13 or so in Japan needed to be told that their fathers their brothers, their uncles, all those soldiers went abroad and were really nice to these other children there, just like they would have been at home. Okay, 
So we're in a setting that is in incredibly violent. Um, it's war. Uh, it's an imperialist war and so on. But children at home very clearly needed to be told that the soldiers were the, the same good man that they were at home. And one way to show that was to picture them with children in various places across the empire. Another uh, kind of uh, interpretation I, I came up with there is that the uh, uh, children are used there, the depictions of children are used there as signaling that these soldiers, and signaling, I think, not just to, other, to, to the children in Japan, but to their uh, perhaps mothers, to teachers, other people who read to these children who couldn't read yet or looked at the pictures and picture books together, to convey to them that they really are the future. And when you depict children, it's already about peace building, nation building, a future together. And so there are lots and lots of utterances by soldiers in memoirs, uh, by other authors in children's books that essentially suggest that these soldiers were there to rescue the children, to protect the children, and also to forge a relationship between children in the empire and children in Japan because this would be the generation of the future. And so there's a lot of language about uh, children need to become friends and uh, for future peace. And it would be assuming, or it would assume that Imperial Japan would still be around. The empire would still exist in that future. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's the interesting thing. We have a lot of uh, scholarship about indoctrination and propaganda and one of the things um, I tried to do in this book is draw the net much wider and not just look at the materials that were published by governmental agencies, but down to or as far away from that as children's books that utilize the figure of the child as vulnerable, as, as, as innocent, as malleable as a symbol of future peace uh, and does not actually say that the Japanese emperor will be there forever, but not talk about the emperor, not talk about the war. The language is already about the peace that is right after the war. And so it's not about, for these uh, younger children, the messages are not about uh, Japan will win the war or you need to become a brave soldier or something like that, primarily. It's about you really are the little people who will build the peace afterward. And the whole political um, uh, structure, the, the reason why the soldiers are there in the first place the possibility that these same soldiers might have just killed the parents of these uh, Chinese children, for instance, that's just not in the picture. So you, you were saying that children were conceptualized at this period as being innocent and vulnerable. Was this a new way to conceptualize? Was like, For instance, was this something that was found in Imperial Japan but not before? That's a very complicated question. Um, I looked into the material of the second half of the 19th century and the late 19th century. What we see is lots of different beginnings of a modern notion of childhood. 
And when you ask what could possibly be these beginnings, it, there are a number of things. One of the key dates that I uh, believe to be essential is 1872, which is the year when two laws came into being. One was mandatory military service for 20-year-old uh, young men and up. And the other was mandatory elementary school for both boys and girls. And so it's really in uh, 1872, one could argue at least superficially, when the Japanese state says the child needs to go to school and be trained and it can't be left to the parents or the families. It can also not be left to class affiliation of children of whether they get any education, formal education at all. And at the same time, the state declares that definitely for a 20 year old boy, that's the end of childhood. But then, because um, that's the time when young men needed to undergo the military physical exam and potentially be drafted uh, for military training. Uh, actually, a small portion of men were drafted at that time, but that was the uh, at least the legal framework to allow that. But then there were a lot of other um, new laws and uh, legal frameworks that essentially cast the child as a separate entity from an adult and as um, not only to be controlled, that was very important, the control of the child, but also to be protected. And so one can discuss what was the primary motivation and so on, but there's a number of things that signal that new concept of the child as also being vulnerable and inherently different from an adult person. For instance, uh, in addition to the uh, mandatory elementary schooling, we have uh, the first child labor law in 1911, for instance. We have uh, foundling laws, child welfare laws. And um, in late 19th century Japan, this changes gradually, but in late 19th century Japan, a child was defined essentially uh, as child up to the age of 13. And when I say that, I mean that, for instance, uh, criminal law uh, treated the child of, uh, of the age of 13 very different from a younger child, or child labor laws, or welfare laws. Um, so for instance, um, a child under the age of 13 was to be protected by public institutions, if it was an orphan, for instance. Um, but the expectation was very clearly, according to the law at least, that once a child was 13, they were supposed to be capable of taking care of themselves, if need be. And so there's a, an, an advancing and intensifying notion of the child being a vulnerable uh, individual that needs to be protected, uh, that needs to be trained, educated, nurtured, and, uh, and also controlled. And then when those children grew up and they were supposed to enact this sort of peace, as you were saying, what actually happened? I mean, Imperial Japan obviously did not last after World War II. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened to the connection between the military and the child or childhood in the post-1945 world of Japan? 
Uh, there are there are wonderful materials from the occupation period, uh, the early nineteen fifties, uh, when a number of uh, sociologists did the first study on how children experience uh, the occupation and and obviously to the degree possible how they see the occupation in comparison to the wartime, and so what these. Um, uh, social scientists did was basically put out a call to children and say send in uh, something you write up on on how you see the occupation and what your experience is of of soldiers uh, and and war and so on and so uh, this is really the first time when we have a fairly you know of course methodologically there are some problems with a study like that but by by contemporary standards but uh, this is the first data set we have where children are asked and respond to a particular question about how they feel about it and what they see. And so a lot of these children are very, very disappointed with the fact that there are still so many soldiers around, even though the war has supposedly ended. And um, they, they, the children are really the last once and I'm not saying that all of them uh, said things like that, but uh, far into the 1950s, one still has utterances of children where they proudly point to a map and say, "Well, Japan used to be this big, and um, uh, too bad that Japan lost the war and so on." So one has to consider, of course, that these are children who hadn't known anything but wartime, and came out of it fully. Uh, permeated by this notion of Japan being incredibly an incredibly great empire, and then they lost the war. The adults, particularly teachers and and other kinds of public commentators, incredibly swiftly shifted to an anti-militarist, uh, pacifist kind of perspective. And so we have in magazines and newspapers commentaries from teachers, for instance, who watch children playing war in the street and say, oh, ch parents, you need to watch out. Uh, children need to be educated properly and need to be educated to be proper, to become proper pacifists and so on and so forth. And the, the interesting thing here is, of course, that this is an, a, a very, very quick move from one um, uh, one notion of what children should be encouraged to do to another. And children do not make that switch as fast, I think, is an accurate uh, perspective. And so uh, we have uh, accounts of children uh, continuing the war games that they have played during the war and um, and a lot of uh, negative commentary and, and um, critical commentary about that from teachers. In children's magazines and children's books, um, the war almost immediately disappears. And so I've looked at, you know, decades of uh, children's books, and it's very clear that the same publishers who uh, a few years earlier had promoted war games played by children as an excellent preparation for becoming soldiers, for instance, now... Um, was intent were intent on on uh, producing uh, little pacifist uh, child readers. Uh, so we have a mixed 
bag in the 1950s and 60s. And I think particularly among children, because they are the ones who who have grown up only during the war. So there, this change between, you know, this military ethos to an anti-military ethos in a very short period of time, and it impacted children, like you said, pretty drastically. Um, but were children still conceptualized in the post-1945 era as being vulnerable and innocent like they were in the imperial era? Absolutely. But under a new regime, so to speak, now they were... Uh, vulnerable and innocent and were as such to be trained to be become pacifist adults. And so there's a lot more discourse about how certain kinds of games, for instance, are dangerous to children. So for instance, um, I've looked at this over decades, but, but even in the 1920s, there are newspaper reports about how ch- how parents do not properly take care of their children and sometimes they fall into a river and drown while playing, for instance. Um, and so that kind of concern that mothers in particular need to be watching out for children to during the day uh, and, and make sure that they don't engage in any dangerous activity is exacerbated uh, tremendously in the post-war period, both in schools as well as in uh, public life in general. Uh, for that, of course, it's important to consider that in, in, even in the early 20th century and into the war period, children were out and about all day. And many of them did who knows what during the day if they were not working. And so that changes drastically uh, in post-war Japan. In what ways? Well, um, that uh, mothers are much more pressured to conceptualize themselves as primary caretakers of children. That was not a mainstream idea um, up to the post-war period. It was very much promoted since the Meiji period, but in practice, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, we have uh, multi-generational families. Whoever could took care of the children or watched the children. Relatively young children watched even younger children. Um, of just a few years of age, even babies. And in the post-war period, obviously also in the wake of um, the economic rise of Japan and the full embrace of the middle class as a deal lifestyle and also as one that uh, was available to ever more people. Uh, school education became much more routine and normalized uh, across the entire population, not just uh, elementary school education, but also secondary school education. Um, And so we have um, relatively uh, dramatically different ideas about how children should be taken care of and in the post-war period. And of course, uh, that's also partly, becomes partly the task of schools to uh, take care of children for ever longer hours in the post-war uh, era. And was there a baby boom in the post-war Japan era? Yes, there was. And, I mean, today we hear often about the, the declining birth rate in Japan. Yes. And so how is that impacting the notion of, of childhood today? That's a, a, that's a very important question, of course, and um, one 
can probably say that children, at least throughout the modern uh, period and of course up to the current day, have always been a big topic uh, for Japanese media and, and public life in general. What these uh, media and other commentators talk about when they talk about children has changed dramatically. Um, obviously, in the in the high growth period up to the 1980s, uh, one key discussion that continues to this day, but is no longer, I believe, as prominent, is how much pressure is appropriate for children, how much pressure to succeed in schools. And so uh, we have an enormously prominent debate about do we uh, in Japan, do we discipline our children too much? Do we pressure them too much to succeed? Is it harmful uh, to children to expect so much of them in terms of academic achievements and so on and so forth? Um, and and up to the 80s, of course, um, uh, other aspects of that uh, discussion were bullying at school um, and then also child suicide. The child suicide rate in Japan is uh, one of the highest um, around the world and uh, partly the education system has always made, been made uh, responsible for that. In the late 1990s, that conversation doesn't go away, but it shifts somewhat due to a really very small number of uh, quite horrific cases of children killing other children. and. That's a huge, that was a huge shock uh, to Japanese society. And it, these cases triggered uh, wide reaching discussions about what is wrong about our society, what is wrong about our education system, uh, what's happening to our children, how could we not see this coming? And of course, one contextual frame for that discussion was the rising number of so-called shut-ins, the majority of whom are boys who hardly leave their room uh, or their parents' house and don't want to interact with anybody socially other than uh, through, through the internet and computer networks and so on and so forth. And so the alienation from, uh, of society, of adult society from children and the alienation of children from the rest of society has become sort of the current new theme. And of course, as you say, the other one is the dramatically declining birth rate in Japan. And uh, as somebody who has um, been visiting Japan for almost 30 years now, it's really um, in, in the public, in public, be it urban or rural, although I tend to uh, spend more time in urban Japan, um, it's quite noticeable that even on weekends when it's, you know, Sunday is usually family day or daddy day, one sees really very few parents with children. And if one does, it's usually with one child. And so that's certainly an issue that uh, is very much on the forefront of discussions about childhood in Japan today. And so what today, what is the connection between childhood and children and the military? One of the things that I've, I've written another book uh, prior to uh, playing war that is an ethnography of the self-defense forces. And so I've, for the last 30 years or so, or more like the last 20 years, I'm sorry, uh, for the last 20 years, uh, looked at 
reporting about the self-defense force and also what they publish in terms of public relations materials, in terms of recruitment materials. And one very, very interesting development and interesting partly because it's new, but partly also in light of the declining birth rate. One interesting element is the fact that the self-defense forces now have tapped into or do tap into children's culture in a way they have never done before. So it's, so it's an incredibly interesting development to see that at the very moment when children become fewer and fewer, the military sort of rediscovers them as carriers of positive images about the self-defense forces and about as legitimizers of the self-defense forces missions. And so it's not necessary, it, it, it's obviously, uh, I should say, not the connection that the Imperial Army made or, or, or publishers made of the Imperial Army with children in Imperial Japan. It's not the same kind of connection, of course. But what is uh, strikingly similar is the, the fact that the public relations apparatus of the self-defense forces have discovered that it's incredibly useful um, and productive to first appeal to children as their public, because very clearly they see what public relations specialists at the beginning of the 20th century saw, namely that children prior to the age of 12 or 13 are open to all kinds of messages. They are the ones that can still be educated in quotation marks, even if they're parents might be anti-military or anti-self-defense forces or or disinterested in them. So what they have uh, begun to do is produce little anime with uh, children in prominent positions where, uh, for instance, one you will find on the website of the defense ministry of a couple of children, actually three children who sit around a table. One of the children draws a a bird and this bird becomes alive and the father is a member of the self-defense forces um, the mother in fact very unrealistically is a housewife and so this bird becomes the educator of these children about what the father actually is doing in the self-defense forces okay and so it's the kind of imagery that would appeal to a child uh, that's one aspect of it, but it also has children in it. So children carry something uh, for the military that is non-threatening. They are curious, they are innocent. Uh, there's nothing negative and nothing, nothing violent about children. And so they are used by the military public relations people in order to paint a particular kind of image of the self-defense forces that is projected to or that is that is conveyed to both children and adults so there's a big debate right now in japan about militarization basically the idea that yes it's a pacifist country and in the constitution there's an article article 9 that states that japan can't have a military for external use and so they have this 
self-defense forces, as you you have been calling them, uh, and it's it's very different than most other countries in the world. Um, but there is a debate now about getting rid of Article Nine or amending it in a way to allow Japan to have more of a traditional military, as as people probably would understand it. Um, but do you think that the these images and the recruitment material that the self-defense forces has um, recently produced, as as you've just been talking about, do you think this will impact the debate over Article Nine, whether or not Japan should amend its constitution to allow for a traditional army rather than the self-defense forces? Well, uh, that's obviously difficult to say whether it's impact. It's going to impact that, but it's certainly a product of that very conversation. You will probably recall that 10, 20 years ago and, and at several moments uh, since the foundation of the self-defense forces, there have been discussions about Article 9. And um, the current, I believe that the current strategy of um, the Abe administration as well as the defense ministry in different kinds of ways is 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 different from previous uh, strategies. The kind of public relations material I've just described will and does, I believe, help to create positive feelings towards the self-defense forces in, in anybody who is listening. What does that mean? What kind of impact will it have is unclear. I can imagine, given the very lack of history education about uh, Imperial Japan, the currently young generation who is eligible to join the self-defense forces have that uh, people are sort of have, I mean, the younger generation is sort of accepting the possibility of uh, the self-defense forces eventually going to war in some, in some configuration um, as inevitable. And I think that's partly because, first of all, they, they haven't been paying attention uh, to Japan's history enough. And more importantly, I think, the uh, older generation, the pacif uh, sincerely pacifist older generation, be it teachers, be it parents, be it other kinds of public uh, figures, have, in my mind at least, really failed at explaining to ever younger, I mean, the, the newer generations, what it is about pacifism and anti-militarism that is so important. All, you know, when you listen to media in Japan, at least for the, for the time I have done so, most of the discussion is about Japan is different, nobody else has an Article 9, and eventually, uh, that that uh, justification of uh, war, uh, the war was terrible, atomic bombs were terrible, um, and that's that's our responsibility, has sort of, has become marginalized, partly because, I think, the current middle-aged generation has not done a good job. It's a little bit like, you know, explaining why democracy is the best system one can have. Nobody does that until it's threatened. And I think that's uh, the case with pacifism in Japan um, to a large degree. 
But one thing I would like to, I always feel like asking the administration and the defense ministry is, even if the current discussion in whatever way it plays out and the current public relations material and campaigns create that positive feeling towards the military, I wonder where these young men will come from who are then supposed to join the self-defense forces and do that war making. It's one thing to say, oh, the Fuji life fire exercise, that's really cool. And we have this and that plane and uh, the self-defense forces uh, do uh, this and that. But it's quite another to then say, okay, uh, and I'm willing to kill somebody for it and risk my life uh, for that coolness. And I think that is something that um, politicians tend to overlook. There's, and also, uh, I think military, uh, the military elite tends to overlook because leaders tend to believe that if you only train them properly, they will do what they are trained to do. Um, but the big question here is, who is going to join the military with such fancy ideas about what the military can now do or might uh, soon be able to do. Well, Sabina Frustuk, thank you so much for joining Freshette. Thank you so much. Sabina Frustuk is a professor of modern Japanese cultural studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she also directs the East Asia Center. Her new book, Playing War, was published in July by the University of California Press. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.